Can't wait to see what the Lord has to say to us today. I'm going to read Galatians 2, 1 through 5, and then we'll do the whole section 1 through 10. Galatians 2, 1 says, Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. Now, if that sounded like gobbledygook to you, that's why you're here. So we started Galatians, beginning of the year. It's 2020, the play on words, 2020 vision. We're talking about seeing the gospel clearly. It's so important to the way that you live, to the way that you think, to see what is the message from God for my life? What is the message about relationship with him? That's what Galatians is about. You have to see it clearly or you'll never be able to live appropriately. We've been saying in our Tuesday night discipleship course, how you see is how you live. And that's why Paul defending the grace of God is so important. And the book of Galatians was important to Martin Luther, set him free from some of the Catholicism abuses and some of the things he was subject to there. He said, this book is my wife. He loved Galatians so much. He said, like I'm married to this book because it was so important. And the gospel, the message from God about coming in and having a relationship with him, not based on your performance, not based on what you do, but based on his love and forgiveness of you, based on him offering himself, God offers himself to you just as you are. And all you have to do is accept it or reject it. And that's what Paul's fighting for. So I start with questions. So I have a couple of questions for you this morning, and they're true or false questions. Things that I've seen in my short ministry history, true or false, to be accepted by God, I have to get my act together. You ever heard anybody say that? I'd come to church, but first I got to get my act together. Is it true or false? How do you know? Well, that's what we study in Galatians, right? We're going to see why that is false. True or false, to be accepted by God, I have to maintain certain religious activities. Oh, you guys are on the mark this morning. And we'll see, well, how do we know that's true? Because it is true, but we'll see why is that true? And why is this an important question? True or false, God accepted me at first by grace, but now that I'm saved, He expects more from me, expects me to do all the right things, or he gets angry. I know for some of you, you're tracking with this, but others are going, I'm saying false, but if you looked at my life, you'd really say that my life says that's true. I really feel that way. I struggle with guilt. I struggle with fear. I come to church because I feel like I have to. I'm afraid if I don't, God's going to punish me. I read my Bible because I feel like I have to, or God's going to punish me. If I don't, then I'm going to be in trouble with God. So we end up organizing our Christian lives around fear and guilt and not around joy and love. Why do you come to church? I meet a lot of people. The church for them is just like, well, you know, it's church, whatever. And I go, what is church to you? Why do you come? 
Some people come because it's just a tradition. It's just a ritual. And if you don't come, you feel guilty because you didn't come. And others come because just love gathering with the people of God. Love God, love gathering with his people. And I look forward to coming together on Sunday morning. So that's something you have to work out. It's the same behavior. Everybody's sitting here in this room together this morning, but you might be here for radically different motivations. And the motivation that brought you here or that drives you to read your Bible, that drives you to pray or that drives you to wear certain clothes and do certain things in a certain way, the motivation behind that can mean everything regarding whether you experience a very joy-filled Christian life of freedom or a bondage of servitude to laws that make you bitter and angry and feeling like a failure all the time. That's why the book of Galatians is so important. Paul is defending the gospel of grace, the message, God's message of grace. He has to defend it because he's planted these churches, not in the city of Galatia. How many of you know there's no city called Galatia? It's a region like Albemarle County or something like that. And there are a number of churches in Galatia, Lystra and Derby and Iconium. These are some of the places where Paul planted churches. He preached grace to them. They got saved. Their lives began to be transformed. But then other people came and they said, actually, Paul's got it wrong. Paul is not a real apostle. He has no authority. And you have to subject yourself to the law to be accepted by God. And circumcision comes up. We'll talk about that in a minute, why that's important to them. But they brought this other message and Paul says, this is not a gospel. This is not the gospel. So you have to know what the gospel is so you know how to live according to the gospel according to the message from God. So Paul is defending this. They were saying these people that came in, we call them Judaizers, which means they were zealous, orthodox Jews of their day. And they were vehement about the non-Jews having to become Jews before God would accept them. That's what they said. And they said, the guys down in Jerusalem, the famous apostles like Peter and James and John, they said, they agree with us in that people have to become Jews first. And they were wrong. How many of you know it's not above people to lie? You know, do you believe everything you hear? Just because someone carries a Bible and wears a suit and comes from 50 miles away doesn't mean they're telling you the truth. You got to know. You got to be informed. So they're coming in and they're messing with the minds of the people in Galatia, trying to tell them, we don't really think you really are saved unless you do this, that, and the other thing. And the people in Galatia are going, I guess we need to do those things. They're being drawn away. They're being enticed. They're being fooled. And Paul is desperate for them to understand so that they can live their life by grace. In the same way, I will say to you, pastor of Calvary Chapel, Fluvanna, I am desperate for you to know that you are not just saved now, but continually saved by the grace of God. At no point is it ever up to you. All is up to you is for you to continue to trust God. That's why this is important. So there's no chapter break as Paul defends his apostleship and he defends his message. We started out that back there in chapter one, he talks about three years after he has this encounter with God, the Damascus road, he gets saved. He becomes a servant of Jesus, becomes a follower of Jesus out of ritualistic Judaism. He spends three years on his own, just getting the message right from God that you can hear directly from God. And then he goes to Jerusalem. He has two weeks. Uh, He spends with Peter and some of the guys in Jerusalem. 
They don't talk about the weather. They don't talk about sports. They're not talking about who's playing that weekend in the Jerusalem Bowl. They're talking about ministry. They're talking about God. They're comparing notes. They're talking about what they've seen God doing in their realms of influence. And then for another 14 years, he's doing ministry. 14 years, he's continuing to share his message of the grace of God. And it's continuing to change people's lives in the region, the small region where he lives. So that's what brings us up to chapter two. No chapter break. They're hearing about the work of Paul, but he's in a distant area. Now, verse one says, then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, second time. And this time I didn't go alone. I went with Barnabas and another guy named Titus. So we're in roughly 48, 49 AD, just in case you'd like to keep your calendar. 17 years have passed from the time the Apostle Paul had his revelation of God. And he's convincing these people that he's not some fringe pseudo-Jewish cult leader, that what he is saying is the real deal. You have to trust what Paul is saying here. You have to trust that when we say you're saved by grace, because there's other people that are going to say, no, you're not. There's cults that'll say, no, you're not saved by grace. You're saved by grace and our series of rules. You're saved by grace and our traditions. It's the Bible and our book. And you've got to know because people want to bring you back into bondage to these religious rituals. So Paul says, I went to Jerusalem. I took Barnabas, who is Jewish. Barnabas and Paul were co-workers for God. And he also took this guy named Titus. Titus is an interesting guy. We'll come back to him later on. All you have to know for right now is he's a young kind of ministry apprentice of the Apostle Paul. Paul had two main guys that worked under him, Timothy and Titus, and we'll talk about both of them in a little bit. So it goes 14 years, go by. He's had 17 years of seeing his message transform lives, the grace of God. Remember what they're fighting. Before I get there, the question is, when did this happen? So it's 14 years, but do we have a record of this in the Bible? There's two possibilities. One is Acts chapter 11. The other is Acts chapter 15. There's an argument about this, but most people say this is in conjunction with what we call the Jerusalem Council. You know, there's church councils that we have had through history where all the big leaders in the church get together and they hash out some problem that the church is facing, some false teaching or some issue that the church is struggling with. In our day, what are the issues that the church is struggling with? What are the issues that are divided? Come on, you don't live under a rock. Talk to me, church. Homosexuality. So this has become a huge issue that's dividing the church. So they had their issue in their day. We have our issues in our day. And so church councils get together and they discuss all of these various things to come up with. What is God really saying? So the Jerusalem council was all the big wigs, the apostles, Paul goes, Barnabas goes. It's a big conference. And at that conference, they decide, do non-Jewish people who want and desire a relationship with God have to follow all the Jewish rules to have it? Can the living God accept people that are not Jewish in practice or in nationality? It's a pretty big question. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. We're only here and able to know that we can have a relationship with the living God and experience the love of God for ourselves. We're only here because they said, no, we see this is what God is saying. And they perpetuated that honest and true message from God. And we heard it. I heard it. You heard it. And we said, you mean I can have a relationship with the living God? And someone told me, yeah. I said, really? 
God would want me? Yeah, I don't even like me. So where do I sign? What do I do? Just repent. Just trust God. Turn to him. That's it. I don't have to cut my hair and get tattoos removed and stop smoking and stop drinking and all these things I have to do. No, just come to God now, just as you are. And he takes care. That living relationship is what takes care of the rest. But you can come. You have to come just as you are. If you could have gotten your act together, you would have a long time ago. The reality is God is necessary. He is your physician who heals. And if you don't come to him, that healing and that rest will always elude you. So I'm way too long. That was verse one. Pray for me. And I went up. I'll move a little quicker here. I went up by revelation and communicated. I laid out before them all at the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. We see this argument play out. You can read it at home. I laid out the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. So here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm telling all of these Gentiles, all these non-Jews, ethnic groups that aren't Jewish. Here's what I'm telling them about God. I'm telling them God loves you. He has forgiven you in his son. And if you repent and you come to him, if you change your direction, instead of going away from God, if you come to God, you'll be forgiven, you'll be loved, you'll be invited into his family as a full-fledged child, not a second-class citizen. That's the message I'm telling. That's the message I'm telling people. And so he lays that out publicly to everybody. But then he says, but privately to those who were of reputation or those who held recognized positions. So we were in the public meeting. We were talking about these things. I told everybody, here's the gospel, I'm, the message I'm preaching. But then I had a private meeting with some of the big wigs, the big leaguers. Who would they be? We don't know it from here, but we'll find it out later. Peter's a pretty big deal in the early church, right? The apostle Peter. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is a pretty big deal in the early church. He becomes sort of the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, heavily Jewish in Jerusalem, the church. And then uh, John, who is one of the sons of thunder there, the apostle John, he writes a few things for the New Testament, and he's a pretty big deal. So Peter, James, and John are pretty big deals in the early church, and they're recognized as leaders. So Paul says, I went and I met with them privately. And he said they were of those that had a reputation. And this is what he says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Now on first read, what does that sound like to you? Does it sound like Paul maybe after 17 years is second guessing himself? He's going, oh, you know, I had a private meeting. I was telling him what I was preaching and I was worried that maybe I was running in vain. Maybe the things I was doing, maybe I was wrong. Is that what it sounds like to you? I mean, on first read, that's what it sounds like to me. But we know better. We know the Apostle Paul. This is the guy that says if an angel or anybody, I don't care if the Pope preaches another message, let him be accursed. I don't think Paul is curious or waffling about his message. Do you? Say no. Don't look at me like that. Come on now. I know you're alive. So then what does he mean? He says, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Paul would say, I have been working so hard. If you were with me for the study of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, we had the list. Paul was shipwrecked. He was left for dead. He was stoned. He was chased from one city to the next. He got in trouble every place he went. He sacrificed his life for this message. He has given his all to spread this good news to people. 
And now, 17 years later, he's not going, well, was I right or was I wrong? That would be miserable, wouldn't it? He's saying, 17 years later, I've spent all this time spreading this message and it's transforming lives. Things religious Judaism could never do, I'm seeing happen. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page so that we don't start a split and now some other message is being sent by you guys. Does that make sense? Remember, the people in Galatia are saying, claiming that they're sent by the big leaguers in Jerusalem. They're attaching themselves. They're dropping names. Well, we're sent by Peter. We're sent by John. And it's causing a rift. Paul goes up and says, look, if there's a message spreading from you that you need to become Jewish to be saved, it's going to undermine everything I've worked for, everything God has done. And we'll see that play out as we go through the book of Galatians even further. So please, if you're here for the first time, you got to come at least till we finish Galatians, then you can try another church. But you got to stay for Galatians. You got to have the whole story, okay? (laughs) You're stuck with us now. So now he says a little parenthesis, verse three, yet not even Titus, remember we talked about him before, he went with him to Jerusalem. Not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. So he brings up Titus again. Now remember, Paul goes to this Jerusalem council. He goes to this big church leadership conference about how people can get saved, how people can be right with God and accepted by God. And he brings as proof positive, as evidence number one, a man named Titus. It takes it from the hypothetical. We can sit around and talk about doctrine all day long. Who's saved? Who's not saved? What does it look like to be saved? And Paul says, look, forget that. I'm bringing Titus because he's a Greek guy and he's a young man and he's saved. God is working in his life. Whether you like it or not, God is working in his life. And he brings him. And here's the key. He's Greek. So he's uncircumcised. Now, Let me hit the pause button for a minute, because for us, in our culture, in our day and age, circumcision is sort of a a hygiene or cultural matter that parents have to make a decision about when their baby boys are born. It's usually done immediately after birth, taken care of right there. But for the Jew, this had tremendous religious significance. Matter of fact, their whole relationship with God was demonstrated by submitting to, on the eighth day, the act of circumcision. It meant that when you were circumcised, you were part of God's people. And therefore, uncircumcised people, for them, were not part of God's people. So do you see the battle? I can't really come up with a good illustration for our day. Some would say, you know, baptism, but I think circumcision is a little more skin in the game, so to speak, I guess you could say. I I just thought of that now. That's not in my notes, but it sort of works, doesn't it? We're adults here, right? I didn't write this. This is the culture. This is the deal. So it's not an exact thing, but the best I could say, it'd be like an older, traditional preacher, pastor, going to the fundamentalist convention. And you know, one of the culture of that is suits and ties and all that. Do you know what I'm talking about? All right, you're with me. Everybody looks the same because everybody's wearing the suits and all that. So imagine showing up at one of those conferences with my new apprentice, my intern for ministry, and he's wearing biker leathers, has long hair, tattoos, and boots, and saying, here he is. He's going to be taking over for me in ministry. 
That's what I say. Hallelujah. Thank God for his grace, right? But to those that come from a religious, traditional culture of a certain kind of dress, that would be very off-putting. And they would go, ooh, I'm not sure they can be a pastor if they don't get things looking a certain way. But that's human-driven. That's a small example of how the Jews would have felt very, very obstinate about, no, 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 circumcision is the way to enter into relationship with God, period. And this was the battleground. So what was the decision? Paul's telling the Galatians, hey, look, I took Titus, and they did not have him get circumcised. Can you imagine the walk that Paul and Titus took to Jerusalem? Titus is going, are you sure about this, Paul? (laughs) I mean, I hope you're sure about this because this could go wrong for me. (laughs) But in fact, Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. So they spoke not just by their words. Sometimes you got to put your, your money where your mouth is. So he brings Titus and he says, go ahead, what do you say? Does Titus have to be circumcised? And the big leaguers, the big wigs in Jerusalem said, no, we're with you. But there were others, notice verse 4, who were not of pure agenda at this meeting. Verse 4 says, all this occurred. The problem was, the issue arose because there were false brethren. That's always why issues arise. There are those people that claim to be believers, or they claim to have a closeness with God, but they are just trying to bring you into bondage to their system of religion. We call them cults, pseudo-Christian cults. There's other kinds of false religions, but we would talk in this context about pseudo-Christian cults. Yeah, Jesus is good, but he's not enough. It's Jesus and anything you add to Christ now puts it up to you. It's Jesus and got to wear these clothes. It's Jesus and you got to follow these rules. It's Jesus and. And Paul says, it's not Jesus and circumcision. That was huge for them. But there were false brethren who came in and said, you cannot be saved apart from Jesus and circumcision and the law of Moses. Now, they wouldn't have called themselves false brethren, would they have? They would have said, they're the ones that know the truth. It's that Paul who's off kilter. But Paul says they are false brethren. And notice he uses three very specific words, and they all are linked to the world of military espionage. It's just like a spy movie. How many of you guys like spy movies? So think about espionage. He says, this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in. They came in by stealth and they were spying. Now, recently, I got back from Hong Kong. Some of you know, November, I had a chance to go to Hong Kong. Interestingly, it was the inauguration of a conservative seminary in Hong Kong. So I wore my suit and tie so I could mingle and be accepted there. And we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But as we're leaving, there's about a thousand people there. And they're from Taiwan. They're from Hong Kong. They're from Singapore. They're from China. And everybody's there. We're worshiping and there's messages and there's niceties and, you know, congratulatory, uh, celebratory things happening. And someone pulled me aside and said, you see that row, those two rows back there? Yeah, those are all spies. I said, really? This is new to me. Really? Yeah, they represent the Chinese government and they're here to make sure that there's no anti-Chinese sentiments being shared or no anti-China propaganda being shared. They're here to spy out what we're doing. And in the same way, these false brethren had come into the church. That's how Satan works best, isn't he? He doesn't come to the front door and say, hi, I'm here to destroy and undermine everything God is doing. 
Oh, sure, come on in. How many of you have ever had to deal with termites in your house? Those pesky little creatures. They get to work silently. You don't see them. You don't realize they're there, but they undermine. They build their little tunnel, their little mud tunnel, and they climb up your cinder block foundation, and they start eating the joists of your house. Until pretty soon, all of a sudden, your floor is sagging, and you're going, what happened there? And then you look underneath, and you go, whoa, the whole thing has been undermined. Now, the whole house is at risk. Do you see why this is so important to Paul? If you undermine grace with even just a little bit of termites, of these gospel termites, if you add any, just a little thing, baptism, there's a group that believes in baptismal regeneration. In other words, you're not saved unless you accept Jesus and you're baptized. But you got to preach that one to the thief on the cross. You got to preach that one to people who live and die in a prison somewhere and they accept Jesus and never have a chance. It's not universally preachable. And it's not true because that, even something like that, adds to the finished work of the cross. Are you with me, church? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So these three unique words that deal with espionage, secretly brought in, there's a conspiracy, they're double agents to ferret out information. They were smuggled in. They came in stealthily. They came in under the radar. They didn't introduce themselves at the door. And they came in to spy out in order to destroy. For them, they were super orthodox Jewish zealots that were gathering intel and building a case to undermine and attack and destroy the Apostle Paul and further than that, his message of the grace of God. What were they spying out? They were noticing and they were upset about the liberty that people have in Christ. Not liberty to sin. We'll deal with that later. Liberty from religious bondage, liberty from religious traditionalism and rules and regulations and do this and do this and do this and don't do that and don't do this. And pretty soon the whole thing, how many of you have lived there? You've come up in a fundamentalist sort of situation, maybe some of you in a cult situation where everything was about doing all the right things. You got to do this and you got to go door to door. You got to ride a bicycle. You can't drink coffee. You got to witness or else you're not accepted. They won't tell you that. But when you get inside, that's what it's about. It's about Jesus and our set of rules and doctrines. And our group is the only one that has it right. We're not talking about issues of morality. Peter, in Acts chapter 15, says, why do we try to test God? Why would we try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke of bondage that neither we nor our ancestors could bear? Why are we going to have the Gentiles try to do all this Jewish stuff that we couldn't do? How many of you would say last week you were a 100% good Christian? Go ahead, raise your hand, and then it'll end because you just lied. Because we know that we know that we know. I mean, how good were you? 80% good last week? Were you 50% good? Come on, we're in church. Well, the question is, how do you even judge? How do you even know that? What's the set of standards by which you go, well, I was really a 50%. I mean, next week, I'm hoping for 90. I'm going to get it next week. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray for an hour. I'm going to do these things, and I'm going to show that I am a worthwhile Christian. You ever felt that way? You might not say it. This is where, as they say, the rubber meets the road. You might not say it, but your emotions, the guilt you feel, the failure you feel will show that you actually don't believe in the grace of God. You actually believe that you stay in right standing with God because you do all the right things at any given moment. 
So one author named Timothy George said, we are freed from the servitude of self-justification. Let me say that again, just so you get it, get your pencil out, sharpen it up, write it down. You are freed from the servitude of self-justification. That means you are freed from the pressure at any given moment to justify why God should love you and why God should bless you. You're freed from that. And you know what a burden that is, what a bondage that is. If you ever have to say, God accepts me because I substitute anything in after that. I mean, I talk to people all the time. Are you saved? Well, I'm a Methodist. Well, who cares if you're a Methodist? What does that mean? Are you saved? Well, I was baptized as an infant. Well, who cares? Have you trusted God and entered into a living relationship with God the Father through the sacrifice of Christ the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes or no? You know, it blows people away. It blows people away because we've come up in this religious culture of Christian legalism where we're put on us all these rules, and I've experienced it, and you've experienced it. So the grace that God would accept us just as we are, and then begin to work, that he loves us just as we are, and that we can have a vital relationship with God. We can't survive without a vital relationship with God. In other words, it's essential for you to come to God to begin to live the life you were always meant to live. What good? All the rules and all the regulations. Paul would say that religious Judaism did nothing for transforming my life. Legalism can never do what the Spirit of God will do in your life. The only way to receive the Spirit of God is to come to Him and to trust Him. And He will fill your life if you receive Him. Oh, there's more, there's more. Let's roll on. Verse 5. He says, to whom we did not yield submission even for an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. There are certain things you just cannot bend on. And I like that about the Apostle Paul. He says, yeah, there's some things that are debatable issues, the style of music, the style of dress. This group has its preference. That group has its preference. That's fine. But what we cannot compromise on is that style of dress doesn't save you. That style of worship doesn't save you. Those set of traditions or rituals, those abstinences, they don't save you. The grace of God is what saves you when you trust him. And that's what Paul says we can't compromise on. Now, I'll make one quick note. Hang with me. I mentioned Titus, and I mentioned Paul's other protege. What was his name? Anybody remember? Timothy, right. So Titus goes to Jerusalem. He does not have to get circumcised. He breathes a sigh of relief, says, thank you, God, for grace. I'm going home. But there's another guy named Timothy who had a little different story. In Acts chapter 16, Timothy joins Paul in ministry, another young man. But there's a difference. Timothy is half Jewish. And his father is Greek, his mother is Jewish. So according to Jewish tradition, he'd be Jewish because it's inherited through your mother's side. So Paul and he begin ministry together. And where did Paul go when he enters the city? Where does he go? He goes into the synagogue, which is full of Jewish people. And he brings Timothy in, and Timothy is not circumcised. Now, I don't know how they know that. I'm just saying this is what happens. But evidently, it's going to be a little stumbling block. So Paul says, Timothy, I think you should get circumcised. And Timothy, talk about being all in. Timothy does it for the gospel's sake, so that Paul said to the Jews, I became as a Jew. In other words, Timothy's going to go through that ritual so that he can have an area of influence 
with the Jews they were preaching to. Just in the same way I wore a suit and tie when I went to Hong Kong, because otherwise in that culture, I might get shut off. No one's going to listen to what I have to say because that group accepting of this thing. So I know I'm not saved by it. Paul knows Timothy's not saved by being circumcised or not. But in order to have a hearing so he can preach the gospel, he says, I'm willing to do it. So at different times, different situations. Does that make sense to everybody? All right, if not, call me. You can take me out the coffee. So, but Paul says, we didn't yield to submission. All right, let's continue on. Verse 6 to 10 is one long run-on sentence. He says, but from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seem to be something added nothing to me. So he deals with the false brethren, talks about that. Now remember, they're saying that Paul is some fringe cult leader of some sort, that he's gone astray, he's gone wacko, and his message is not consistent with the Jerusalem message. So Paul says, I went up to Jerusalem, I brought Titus, they didn't have to circumcise him, and now from those who seem to be something, whatever they were at one time in the past, it makes no difference to me, for God shows no personal favoritism to man. Literally, it says, God does not regard or accept the face of a man. That's literally what Paul says. God does not accept the face of a man. In other words, God is not impressed by the external appearance. And that's not what he makes his judgments based on. You can't name drop. See, they were name dropping Peter, James, John. So Paul says, look, I met with Peter, James, and John. That's who he's talking about here. And he says, they're elevating these guys as if their message and their lives are more important than anybody else's. And Paul says, look, they're just men like me. This will be interesting. If you like this kind of stuff, come back next week, because in the next section, Paul is going to confront Peter about hypocrisy. He's not without human frailty, Peter is. Neither is Paul, and neither am I, and neither are you. So Paul says, Peter, James, and John, yeah, they walked with Jesus, but I had a revelation of Jesus. And God is not impressed by your PhDs or by the people you hang out with, the conferences that you went to. What did Samuel learn about God? With David, remember when David is anointed king? God does not look in the outward appearance. Don't look at people like people look at people. Where does God look, church? God looks at the heart. And he's just looking to see whose heart is for him. You can be the most religious person in the world and not have accepted Christ as your savior. Religion is just outward. When the inside is changed, that changed the outside according to Christ not according to what other people tell me I should be or do. So Paul says, God does not accept the face of a man. Who is Peter? Who is Paul? We're just servants. That's what he says in 1 Corinthians. And he says, what did they do? They added nothing to me. I gave them the message, told them when I was preaching, and they said, yeah, that's right. Sounds good to us, Paul. A matter of fact, on the contrary, verse 7 says, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, and the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. Now, I know it's a long run-on sentence. Hang tight, pay attention. Are there two gospels? Is that what Paul just said? There's a gospel for the Gentiles, for the uncircumcised, and a gospel for the circumcised? That's not what he said. It's the same gospel, but to do two different spheres of effectiveness. God empowered Paul 
largely to be taking the gospel, not exclusively, but largely to the Gentiles. That was Paul's calling. Just like God has called some to take the gospel to the prisons or some to Africa or some to Fluvanna County. We have different areas and spheres of effectiveness. And that's okay. And Peter, he was going to take that same message to the Jews. There would be unity. I don't care what's on the sign outside of the building. What matters is that what's being preached from the pulpit is the grace of God. You are not sharing the gospel, the true message of God, if you're not preaching grace. So it's the same gospel, and that gives us unity. Whatever the denomination is, whatever the deal is, if we can agree on salvation by grace, we're together. We can find unity in that. And so they did. And when James, that's the half-brother of Jesus, Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, they were the bigwigs, the go-to guys in Jerusalem, when they perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. There was unity. They were shaking hands and saying, hey, praise the Lord. God is using the same message to reach all different kinds of people, Jew and non-Jew, all over the world in our lifetime for millennia, for centuries. We've never had to go, ooh, the Bible, it's a little outdated. We need to revise it. The message of the forgiveness and the grace of God stood the test centuries. And it's still as effective here as it is in China, as it is in Africa, as it is in Jerusalem. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. Hey, as we go out preaching, we have to remember that God cares for the poor. And Paul says, I'm with you. I'm with you. We'll share the truth and we'll demonstrate it by love, sharing with the poor. Are you with me, church? All right. 